Greetings Grapple fans, it's time to continue this epic quest to watch every match that we can that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has rated 5 stars or higher and this may be one of the first ones that you could technically have the or higher level and it's going to be the second part in the quadrilogy of Lorcan and Simon's epic quest of every Ric Flair, Ricky Steamboat match that Dave Meltzer has loved so much he's given five snowflakes or even more. Yes, it's Let Me Tell You Something. I'm your co-host, Lorcan Mullen, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Simon Cross. Simon, we are in Landover, Maryland, in a show that only a few thousand people in Landover, Maryland thought they would see on March the 18th, 1989. And we are looking through the eyes of one bloke with a camcorder that... uh, some point seems to make some sort of reference to something going on in the hotel suite or something like that. Don't I think know you get some like there. sports commentary yeah, on it at one point. I thought it was, I didn't realize it was a camera, but I thought it was like um, closed circuit television. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, this was a match that Dave Meltzer at the time said deserved something like five and a half to six stars as a fair grade. And it's Ricky Steamboat defending the title against Ric Flair. So what we can essentially take from this, Simon, is that it's more likely than not that if Dave Meltzer had seen every one of the... Let's see here. I'm just trying to count how many times Ricky Steamboat defended the title against Ric Flair between now and the two out of three falls match that we've got. Uh, Once in Baltimore. Once in... Uh, Greensboro, once in Atlanta, once in Philadelphia, once in Landover, which is the one we're talking about here, once in Raleigh, once in um, once in Columbus, and once again in Baltimore. Essentially, Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair might have had like ten five-star matches over the course of a brief period of time. Because let's be honest, a lot of these matches are going to be quite alike. But I do think there are quite a few noticeable differences between this match and the previous one that we watched where Ricky Steamboat won the title. Because the story now seems to be that it's a whole lot harder keeping on to a title than it might be to defend the title, than it might be to win the title. Because right from the start, throughout this whole match, Ric Flair seems a lot more aggressive and he seems to take a lot more of the offense. So Ric Flair as a challenger seems to be, to me a different wrestler to Ric Flair, the champion. Would you agree with that assessment? I do wholeheartedly. I think he, to go from the theme of underestimation we talked about in our previous episode, he he's he's angry at himself, at the situation. Uh, he's angry at Steamboat for having the tena- tena- temerity, temerity to be better than him. Um and straight from Jump Street, he's in there. He's he's, he's yeah. getting um hair, pulling the hair with his feet on the ropes. He's going right at it almost immediately. And also in response, the thing I always said about Ricky Steamboat was that, and I still to this day contend that he might be the greatest pure babyface of all time. 
in that you can't imagine him as a heel. He works so perfectly as a face. Yeah. The only other people that you could maybe compare him to, at least in the North American tradition, is Ricky Morton, maybe, who who did do some time as a heel. Um, and also, like, as the close to the modernist equivalent was, the uh, unfortunately now retired indie wrestling star El Generico was also fantastic at just being that pure baby face. I don't know what happened to him, but, you know. No one does. Yeah. I... Last thing we heard, he was in Tijuana. Maybe he'll make his big comeback one day. We don't know. But, um, but but he's not he's not all goody two shoes. I I didn't know early on he shoves the ref twice, quite early in the match. And he's the one that throws the first face slap in this as well. Mm. Like I mean, yes, Flair at this point has already tried to pin him with like his feet on the ropes, but he's the one that first like absolutely cracks him across the chops. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, although Rick Rick Flair always baits them in and then. He's like yeah. trying to get in their heads, and very often they'll slap. Like Barry Windham again. We keep calling back to the Barry Windham matches, but there are some similarities to them. Um, there just will be. Um, but Steamboat's very good at that. You're not getting the best of me, Rick. I know everything you have in yeah. your book. You know we've seen this rodeo. Um... <clears throat> also in this match, a lot more Matsuda interference. I was gonna. I was just about to get onto that point because mm. straight after the slap. That's when um, Hero gets involved for the first time. He he sort of tries to like distract. Like every chance Flair um, Steamboat has to build momentum, mm. Matsuda, Matsuda smothers it. Mm. It's sort of like to go back to the previous episode again. We're going to cross. It, we're just going to cross streams a lot with this because it is a quadrilogy after all. Mm. Um, to go back to the previous match, Steamboat was the one smothering Flair. Every time Flair tried to break out, whereas Hero is smothering Steamboat this time round. Yeah, well, like, Ric Flair does do the classic thing with the heel manager where he distracts the referee to give Matsuda the opportunity to attack Steamboat without the ref knowing. Several times in the match that happens. Um, but yeah, Flair's just aggressive at the start, but also in a callback, Steamboat does fight back. It's not like Steamboat's getting his ass handed to him. Steamboat is still taking up a large amount of offense in the match. Um, yeah. Whereas in the previous time, like I said, when Ric Flair, Ric Flair would try and bait Steamboat to come out, and then when they go out, that would be when Ric Flair would gain control. In this one, he baits Ric Flair, uh, baits Ricky Steamboat out, but Ricky Steamboat kind of knows what Flair's about and stalks him until they have to go back into the ring. So there's like references to previous encounters and that sense that they know each other. But yeah, um, very uh, there's a lot more figure four and leg work in this match. Oh yeah. Um, like quite early on, Ric Flair dodges a drop kick and immediately slaps on the figure four leg lock. And he's doing the classic getting the ropes, ref looking away, getting on the ropes, ref looking away. Ref sees it, kicks his hand and forces the figure four to get broken up. And again, like Ric Flair distracts the ref by arguing with him. And so that's when Hiro Matsuda, I think Matsuda attacks the knee, doesn't he? He does target yeah, the knee. Yeah, um, he kept that going. And then... Um... Flag after that point will keep snapping away for the figure four and then does get it in again. Yeah, yeah. Well, hit Steamboat hits a really hard chop, but he's wobbly. He's very good at like selling that the damage done to the knee. So Flair hits the knee, atomic, you know, the knee, the the knee breaker, atomic drop, and immediately goes for a second figure four in the middle of the ring. So it's like yeah. he can't get to the ropes, but he, it's almost like he's more confident. Like he puts on the first figure four. And he's near the ropes because he just wants to get as much damage done as possible. He doesn't necessarily think he's going to win. He's just seen an opening. 
But when he thinks he can win from the figure four, then he goes into the middle of the ring because he thinks that Steamboat might submit or that he might get pinned. Um, we won't go into that argument again of whether the figure four should cancel the pin or not. <laughs> but like I said, he's just so aggressive throughout this match. It's the most aggressive Flair's been in every... Like, he's definitely got more in in this match than any match we've seen of him other than maybe the first Barry Windham match, which felt very even Stevens. And like mm. I said, that was back when Ric Flair was more the traveling champion. Now he's sort of the definitive figurehead of one company and he's that one, you know... Jim Crockett promotion. He's plugged into well, into. I got think a it might be WCW at this point. I'm never quite sure when it officially becomes named WCW um, as opposed to the NWA. Because they're still fighting with the NWA belts, but the promotional material very often is saying WCW. Yeah. Um, what I find as well is Ric Flair's aggression sort of... Um, it goes that old adage of pride becomes before a fall because it's, a, it's his aggression... When he goes for a knee drop after getting in, um, what was I going to say here? Yeah, well, yeah, after getting in the figure four a couple of times, he's. Um, let me start that again. Sorry, brain's going. Ugh, two seconds. Brain energy drink. Okay. <clears throat> With Ric Flair's aggression, it sort of becomes his downfall in a little set. Because when he's aiming to um, finish Steamboat off with the knee drop to the head, that's when Steamboat gets out of the way and creates the opening for Steamboat, who's had his legs attacked, to sort of level the playing field by attacking Flair's legs. Yeah, so Flair's been aggressive throughout the whole thing. When they went to the outside, he hits a chop that literally sends Steamboat over the barriers... Um, Steamboat tries to make a comeback with a shoulder to the gut sunset flip, which is always a really good spot. It was always a popular spot from that era, uh, which you don't you still see nowadays, but not as much as you used to. Um, yeah. It's... But what was interesting also is Ric Flair tries to grab the rope and the ref kicks him off. Now, I think the... Lo- and I was, first I was wondering, but that's not illegal, but I think the logic was it was kind of like the referee evening it out like you use the ropes illegally so I'm going to stop you from using them legally this time yeah he um Ric Flair has one thing I did notice like some of the pins that Ric Flair holds and it carries through to the next match as well he gets some really tight pins on Steamboat like he's you really get that sense he's really trying to hold him down. He's trying to pin him to the mat and Steamboat's desperately trying to fight. Not like an amateur wrestling where it's, you know... Where it's a one that's count, all, that's so all you've what just got to get there. Yeah, that's all that it is. It's just a case of he gets these tight cradle pins where he's not only hooked the leg, but he's got his hand, he's got his arm under the neck and he's clasping the two together to make it really hard for you to get... To give an opening for a guy to put their shoulders up, which... Well, he wasn't pinning as strongly in the last match, and look what happened. He exactly, lost his title. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, like you say, Ric Flair misses the knee drop. And then Steamboat slaps on the figure four, and Flair gets to the ropes, and again the ref kicks him off the ropes. So it was another one of, like, you, you're not getting away with it this easy. And it's always a fun spot in those where he goes to sit up and then the baby face. I think Wyndham did this as well. Punches him whilst Punch. he's there. Punches him when they sit up and they're kind of within arm's length of each other. So um, the ref does the break and, and Steamboat reapplies the hold. Um, and this is where we get about, 
I st- I didn't count, but it must be over a dozen elbow drops to the knee. Yeah. Steamboat just loses his shit. And also, it's it- just an amazing cardio as well. It's like how when Dolph Ziggler wants to show off his cardio, he does those ten consecutive elbow drops. Yeah, he's dropped. He hasn't done that in quite some time, to well, be fair. Well, he did give know. Jerry Lawler a heart attack with that, so maybe that's kind of put him off <laughs> doing it. That will do it. Yeah. Um, if anything's ever going to put you off. Yeah. He, um, yeah, Steamboat is just, it's the point now, it, it's the moment though, because he has soaked up a lot of pressure. Yeah. Hero's been annoying him. I think um, it's, yeah, sorry, go on. And it's, it's just that baby, that classic baby face moment where it's like, I've had enough. Like, th- th- I'm yeah. just. It's very aggressive. Yeah. Well, he has an opening at last. Well, he has an outlet like, for all of his pent-up frustration. He has an opening, and he's absorbed so much damage that he needs to make this count. Yeah. He needs to hurt Rick as much as Rick's hurt him, and he doesn't necessarily have as much time to do it. Yeah, there's there's aggression to it, mm. because he's annoyed, but he's also desperate. He's scrambling. Mm. So he reapplies the figure four, and Ric Flair's way of breaking it up is to attack Steamboat's damaged knees, which was a really cool spot. I really yeah. liked that. Um, and so Steamboat, this was a spot I think we saw in all three of the Barry Windham matches. And it takes them a while, is... like, to get back on their feet afterwards. Yeah, they are just, yeah. like, sucking wind. Yeah, uh, Steamboat goes for a splash and Ric Flair gets his knees up. No, like I said, that was something you saw in all three of the Barry Windham matches. So that's not something I'm... I'm not a huge fan of mat- of people having trademark moves. Which, I mean, knees up from a splash isn't a trademark move, but it's obviously something that Rick likes to do to change the momentum. He thinks it's a great momentum changer. But trademark counters, you mean? Yeah, it's like it's like that running gag of you can't powerbomb Kidman. The Kidman has this trademark face crusher, but he only face buster, but he only does it when someone goes for a powerbomb. So whether a wrestler does or doesn't usually do a powerbomb, for some reason they will try to powerbomb Kidman. Or you can't armbar Roman Reigns because he will just pick you up. Mm. Yeah. Or like, well, there was another one as well. Austin Aries for the longest time had this really cool thing where, when he was in a head scissors, he'd do a headstand, a headstand, jump out of the head scissors, and then hit a drop kick. So eventually, that became like a gag of like the wrestlers know what's going to come, so they yeah. Know. So you can't, you know. A final, another one. Sorry, I just thought of one. I really want to get it out. Is um, going off the top rope against Randy Orton or against Ric Flair. <laughs> yeah, it never ends well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. But but I mean it's yeah yeah I know what you mean. Um, so yeah, they, there's just a sense of both being utterly exhausted. They slug it out at the ropes. Uh, there's a corner sequence where they. Oh, I don't know what I've written there on my notes. Can't quite tell. Oh yeah, corner sequence. Oh where? Oh yeah, there's a corner sequence that ends with Ric Flair hitting a boot to Steamboat from a charge. So like yeah, Ric Flair. So it's like it's it's stuff that you don't necessarily always see from Ric Flair. It's the charge into the corner. Jump over, Ric Flair in the corner, hits a boot at the charging Ricky Steamboat. Does a delayed vertical suplex. He does quite a few of those in these, I've noticed. Ric Flair uh, does like those sort of Davy Boy Smith suplexes. Um, holds them up in the air for quite a while. Um, I didn't notice at one point Steamboat bridged out of a pin. Kind of a Jaguar Yakota-esque bridging yeah. out. Um, it's got a good bridge as well. Mm, mm. Um goes for a double chicken wing where they both fall down because their knees are you know because his knees so damaged um after doing the press slam from the corner 
Um, Ric Flair does the flare flip and he gets his crossbody in, so he's still hitting this move, you know, like we were saying. It wasn't always getting reversed, although Rick, Ricky Steamboat had done the press slam from the corner before. So Flair does, like, repeat the same spots within the match um, sometimes. Uh, the headlock uh, head scissors bridge up from Steamboat into a backslide. Then he does, like, he does the classic hitting his head into the buckles ten times. That's the only time I remember seeing it in this. That always yeah. seemed like more of a WWF spot to me, like those sort of crowd interactive, get them counting to ten. Yeah, George the Animal Steel kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I yeah, say. yeah. Um, oh, there was one bit that did seem to go weird, like he hits a crossbody and it only gets a two, but I didn't see a kick out. Do you have a note of that? I don't have that match. bit. Whereabouts is that? Trying... I, don't, I don't know when it was. Well, it was after the heads to the buckles. That was the next uh, yeah. note I had. I think there's... Because I do have in my head um, and on my notes, one of the slight things is there are a couple of moments in this match. The ref kicking Flair's hand away. I get the, the psychology and the logic behind it, but I just think that's one of the moments. It's like, oh, well... Why are you doing that? You're meant to be impartial. Well, like you know, I said, it's... I, think it, I think the idea is that Ric Flair cheated so much he's got to have a bit of, um, you know, we've got to even <sighs> this up a bit. It's like a penalty. Yeah. It's like a like a. It's like if you you know if you do shit in a nice hockey game, you got to you got to take a penalty for a few minutes. So it's like yeah, you use the ropes illegally. I'm not going to let you use them legally. Yeah, but that's not what a referee should do. A referee well, should maybe, just maybe a referee should do that. I don't know. I, I, you don't I, get bookings, you know. Well, you do in British wrestling the verbal warnings, but you didn't. I can understand why, because in other points he doesn't do it. Like when yeah. when Ric Flair goes for the ropes later on, it's like, okay, you've had your one. Now I will break this up, you know. And, and like I said, Steamboat is aggressive as well, um, and doesn't necessarily take to breaking holds immediately either. No, um, I think he. What there's one point where he has a word with Tommy, doesn't he? Not like a like a big word, but you can tell he makes a comment, and it's just like. Oh, one spot I thought was interesting. Ric Flair kind of did the Johnny Gargano dive into the ring through the second and yeah, rope, turning it into a splash. Yeah, I, I have it as a I wrote it as a plancher because I didn't quite know what to call it. Um, but well, it's not a plancher. No, it's not but... a plancher. A plancher's more to the outside. Yeah. Well, the classic plancher's like Takamichinoku's springboard plancher off the top rope. It's like a crossbody sort of thing, but from to the outside. It's just weird to see him go for a splash like that. It was a good move. Yeah. I... Like I said, it's like Ric Flair does have other moves. He just has his preferred moves and he does his preferred spots. Towards the end, you get another attempt at the, an Irish whip across and Flair does the flip, but it doesn't work. So then they just do it again. Yeah. <laughs> and then Ric Flair does the flip. And it was always one of my favourite ones when Flair does the flip, starts running to the other corner and the other guy's like, no, you don't. And, and just intercepts. They clobber him and he takes a bump on the apron. The hardest part of the ring. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Oh. So there's a chop. Ric Flair chops, whips him, puts his head down for a backdrop. Steamboat catches him in inside cradle. One, two, three. And that's at 31 minutes, 15 seconds. I know this because Gary Michael Capetta announces it. What do you think of them giving match times at the end? Oh, well, I like it because boxing does it. Mm. And again, it's them thing. It's those little bits that you've got to add. Well, it, Much like Jr. going on about just the random fact that yeah, at the Chidetown Rumble, the title had only changed twice in Chicago. Well, this time the the NWA's uh, catchphrase, their like slogan was "We wrestle," 
and yeah. they were emphasizing the sport and the wrestling aspects too. You'll get that a lot more with later JR commentary as well, where they point out that these guys are wrestling. They are wrestlers wrestling in a wrestling match. They're yes. Not doing, they're not dancing to popular music or whatever it is that they would say. They've got no rock and roll music yeah. and oh, stuff yeah, like that. Oh, yeah, rock and roll music. Everyone hates that. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, do you have anything else to add? The, the, the finish was sudden. It didn't really build to anything in particular. That's one it, of the it, slight... Was that a detraction to you? Yes. Mm. Um, not wanting to jump... Well, I'm segue into the question we always ask. Would we would give we it rate, five stars? Would we give this five stars? No. It's very, very, very good. Very, very, very good. Mm. But there's just little tiny bits that don't make it the complete package. And one of them is the finish. Mm. It was an incomplete viewing in a way. Like, we lose the audio of the crowd for long stretches from the recording. There's no commentary. It's all from one perspective. So you might get a bit bored quicker because they can't do sort of intercutting or anything like that to mm. uh, excite things. Do you think well, that's, we've affected, had this situation think that's before. affected your enjoyment of it? Because it was well, like yeah, the we... same for the third Barry Windham, Ric Flair match, which felt like the weakest of the three, and maybe that was again one of the reasons that it wasn't a yeah. full presentation or something. He, um, yeah, we had, as I say, it's not it's not easy to watch a match from just one camera angle. Mm. It really isn't from an entertainment standpoint. It's you don't realise what you. You don't realise these things until you're in that situation, though. Mm. Um, if you just, if I'd have said, "Oh, I had to watch it from ca- one camera going in," I'd have been the first time we went through this. I'd have been, oh, "Okay, fine." But it really, it's hard to be involved in it. It's it was hard for me to engage with mm. this match because it was only seen from one camera angle. I know. Um, this is it's a very harsh thing to say and it doesn't maybe it had like a subliminal impact on my viewing of this match whether it was five star or not uh which it shouldn't do because if you watched it live you're only seeing it from one angle mm. but i don't know like it's it's how our brains are influenced and how we perceive things i think i think if the if the finish had been more built into the match and if that weird Two counts, it seems like it should have been a three count and something went slightly wrong with it. And maybe some of the Matsuda interference, I don't know. Those are like three I, yeah, small points that would put me off. But I think this is the closest thing to a five-star match so far yeah. for me. Three things take away a little bit. Um, and we've got a bit of overlap. But does, that mean, but does that mean in order for a f- match to get five stars, it will need to have no faults in it whatsoever? No, but what I've got, the, the two count thing, I'm not counting as mine. That's that's the one I've got different. Mm. I've got the ref rope kicking thing. To me, we've, I've, we have already covered the point, but to me, a referee shouldn't be, uh, what's it? It should be lawful good, not chaotic good. <laughs> that's just how a referee I, should I, be. I, I think that this oh. might be an instance of a referee actually being more consistent, in all honesty. Yeah, but within the within the match itself, he's making afford afford uh, allowances for what's happened within the match itself. Yeah, but uh, allowances, yes. Rope kicking, no. But the rope kicking was an allowance. 
It's like I've given you, I've not disqualified you because of that, and I could have, and you were the challenger, so it wouldn't have been in your interest. DQs don't save you this time. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think that's just people getting too involved, like a referee getting too involved. That's just my personal standpoint. Tommy Young does get involved a lot more in these matches. He's more visible. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of like whenever they do the corner punches. He like goes out the ring and hangs off of the the ring post and counts. It's like I don't think you should be that prominent. Yeah. It seems like, like you it's can... unnecessary affectation. I get that Tommy you're trying Young... to get in the guy's like yeah. field of vision, maybe. Another like... thing Tommy Young liked to do was like if they were doing a count and it was really near the ropes, that he would actually slide out of the ring so that he's got the best possible view and do the three count kind of on the apron from the outside. Which was something I've only ever remember seeing a WWE do once. It's a weird little thing, but I just remember weird little things... And you can look it up. I challenge you to look it up, see if I remember this right, because I genuinely haven't watched this match since I saw it 20-something years ago. But at the King of the Ring 1995 main event with Diesel and Bam Bam Bigelow against Sid and Tatanka, Earl Hebner, for whatever reason, rolls out of the ring and starts counting like Tommy Young from the ring apron. I challenge you, let's both do this now. Let's hang up and watch it and see what happens, all right? And then we'll mention in the next episode if I was right or not. Hang on, we haven't finished this recording yet. I'm confused no, now. No, no, after we finish this episode. Right, right. I don't have anything much more to add to this match other than my last thought would be, this is the only house show that we see of these ones, but I was just looking at, like, they have ten or so matches along this loop on house shows. I was listening to all the different places. They basically had this match time and time again. Mm. I mean, house shows are where wrestlers are usually supposed to have a bit of fun. No, they are really like how yeah. hard they push themselves is insane. Like I'm just looking here, like so. Eleventh of March, Ricky Steamboat beats Ric Flair in 25 minutes. Twelfth of March, Ricky Steamboat beats Flair in 34 minutes. Thirty minutes on the 18th. Thirty-one minutes, 22 on the 18th again. So they had two house shows on the same day. 23rd, they don't give a time. You know, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. It's interesting. Yeah. The only other the only other defenses that Steamboat makes that aren't Ric Flair during this time are he has one against Kendall Windham, uh, another member of the Yamazaki Corporation or whatever they were called, and he has one against uh one Tiger Mask Matsuhara Masawa in Japan. Ah. so yeah, another guy that we'll be talking about a lot later. Yeah, but, but to yeah, sum up, this idea sorry, because we um... how much they push themselves. Yeah. But to sum up, because we did segue a little bit there, the three reasons I'd say it wasn't five star: um, the ref, mm. the finish, uh, and I, I do agree with you with the interference. I think what I think you went one or two to the well once or twice too many. Well, maybe it's because Matsu doesn't get really a come up, and so I feel like the ref should have spotted him and sent him to the back, or Steamboat should have hit him to knock him out of the equation. And doesn't yeah, does. there's no real payoff to it, other than just his guy loses. Yeah, yeah. But that's typically not how. If you're going to interfere and your guy's going to lose the match, you should get comeuppance. But if someone gave this five stars, I wouldn't dispute it. And maybe no. if I'd seen fewer matches, I'd think this was five stars. You know? Yeah. But maybe. Also, also, maybe it's because we're being so analytical and we're like, five stars is now taking some sort of reverence that we're almost like we have to be even more exacting. Like, maybe we're being harsher in this run. 
the Meltzer just if he loves a match that much, he's gonna give it five stars. And it's obvious that Meltzer loves Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat matches. Yeah. Well, we saw it in the previous one. <laughs> and maybe I... we don't love them as much because we weren't there for it at the time when these two were the two best wrestlers in the world, arguably. Like this is like Djokovic Murray or Nadal Federer or something like that, you know? Yeah. Sometimes um it's like the two not to disparage the two, sometimes it's just like this is what was good at the time. Yeah. I think we've put a lot more thought into whether this is five stars or not than Dave Meltzer did. Yes. Time. Yeah, oh yeah, no, we haven't made a gut like it wasn't mm. But did Dave make a gut call? I don't know, it's it's difficult. Well, I think that's exactly what, well, like you said, he didn't even really say like he said it was like five and a half to six stars. So essentially he's saying this was the best match ever at this point, maybe. You know? Mm. And already it shows that he's not necessarily taking that scale that seriously. Like everyone goes on about, oh, we gave the Omega Okada match six stars. Well, he was already talking about six star matches before then. Decades ago. Yeah. The key question is, what do you give it now? But that, that context and time I is think everything. He would, I think he would give this five stars. I think I'm not so he sure. Sees this, I, no, I think he sees this as just of its time within its context. It's still a perfect match. I think, yeah, I definitely think, yeah, if you ask Rick, Dave Meltzer now, he'd still say that's five-star, these are five-star matches. Because I think mm-hmm. he sees, I think until the Okada Omega series, he saw this as the pinnacle of wrestling. I really do think that's what he thought. And I don't think he's going to think just because it's now not quite the pinnacle doesn't mean it's not still worthy of the top possible marks you can give it. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like we're thinking the only thing that's five-stars can only be like one or two matches. Almost like now, like maybe that's what the stature of five stars is applied. We'll see as we go along. Maybe we'll start throwing five stars out, like candy. As crush. I think with a f- if if you think a match is five star, you will know it and you will say it. Well, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, and maybe we'll come to it in the next episode. Who knows? Because in the next episode, we're going back to the official trilogy, as they are taking part now in a two out of three falls matches, a two out of three falls match. For the title, a Clash of the Champions 6 in New Orleans, Louisiana on April the 2nd, 1989. But until then, if you want to get in touch with us, maybe you want to watch the Diesel um, Bam Bam Bigelow against Sid and Tatanka match to see if I was right. <laughs> you can get in touch with me and give me a back slap and a high five by email, by putting an at gmail.com at the end of Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for arm bar N for Nosty boys. <laughs> That's my Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, letterbox handle, whatever, anything else like that. Simon, how can they get in touch with you? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. So known because the free second gap between the two syllables in Nosty when you said it just then. What a nasty thing for you to say, Simon, making fun of me. <laughs> But until then, my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time until the next time.